Welcome to Libre Lounge, a podcast about free software, free culture, and all the other interesting aspects of user freedom. With Christopher Lemmer Weber and Serge Broklowski. Hi, I'm Serge. I use he, him pronouns. Hi, I'm Chris. I use non-binary pronouns such as they, them. Welcome to Libre Lounge, uh, the show about user freedom. So this time, Chris, you invited a guest. So why don't I why don't I let you introduce our guest? Sure. So um, Maureen Duffy uh, is a user interface and user experience. Um, uh, 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 artist and designer that uh, I've known for a while, um, and uh, uh, I've been following her work for a very long time, so I'm really excited to have her on the show. Welcome, Maureen. Tell me slash us a little bit about what you do. So I am a user experience designer, and I work at Red Hat. Um, I've actually been there. They just had my 15-year um, thing um, this week, <laughs> although oh, it was oh, cool. actually in January. Um, but I was an intern even longer. So anyway, yeah. So, um, I started there, I I believe I was the third designer to work in the engineering department. Um, and I'm certainly, um, the longest running one. Um, and what I do, I mean, sort of uh, my goal in life actually is, is to make free software more accessible to everyone. Um, so that there's not sort of this, uh, this skill sort of gate that you have to pass through in order to be able to benefit from software freedom. I would prefer everyone to have that benefit. So that's sort of the core of what I do in my philosophy. Okay. That makes, that makes sense. Uh, I always find, uh, and this, this comes up in, I think every interview we've done and plus the conversations that Chris and I do alone, where, where you started, how you got started in free software uh, whether that's because you couldn't afford something that was proprietary or, you know, because, of, uh, you know, you, maybe you met someone. I think that always has a deep impact on the trajectory of the rest of your involvement. So can you tell us a little bit about how you got started? Sure. Um, and it's kind of a weird story. Um, my family's always been around technology even before it was cool. Um, I'm, I'm a child of the, the late 80s, um, so I actually learned how to read playing text parser adventure games on an IBM XT. Um, my uncle worked for Citibank in Manhattan, and I, I think it was like on the loading dock to get thrown out, so he picked it up for us kids to play with. Um, so I kind of grew up with DOS on a floppy, and um, I had a PC Junior, so um, it didn't have a hard drive, and my older brother had the XT. And, um, so like I grew up very familiar with, you know, just touch typing and how to work with computers and that kind of stuff at, at a time when that was not normal for a kid that age. Um, and as I got older, we, um, we actually used OS two for a while. And I, that's like my dad and my older brother just kind of being geeks and having oh, okay. fun with it. I, th- I thought that I thought that was the uh the Red Hat tie-in. But <laughs> no, pre IBM Red Hat. Um but um we built we built a 486 DX2 
um, because it was all around the video games, the Sierra Adventure games. To use the newer ones, you needed a CD-ROM, and you needed... Um, we had a Pro Audio Spectrum, but um, you, you needed like more hardware than the old XT could do, so we built a new computer just to be able to play these games. But that computer kind of grew up with us. My brother, older brother ended up doing computer science, and he studied at a local university, and to save money, you know, he, he lived at home, but he commuted to school. And, um, you know, he needed to compile his homework. Um, back then, it wasn't like, you know, the operating system didn't come with a compiler. Um, so he would have to tell that to his university's Unix systems to be able to run. I, I don't know. I, I guess he was running GCC. I actually don't know what he ran at university. But um, we only had one phone line. We had a 1200-baud Hayes modem. And I was on the phone all the time because I was a teenage girl, and he couldn't get access to compile his homework. So he brought home Red Hat Linux. And, I mean, we were we were using OS2 at the time, so it's not like we were normal to start. But I really fell in love with it because um, you could modify anything about the appearance. Like, I used to do hacks with, like, Windows 95 where you would change the start and shutdown screens, and I had it, like, have demons and flames and stuff like that, and I would do custom icons, but... All of that stuff was way easy, and you can control stuff. You could actually change the code with the um, the desktop and Linux. So that was sort of the start. From there on, I was using Linux, and um, it wasn't like my daily driver, but I definitely played around with it. And then when I got to college, I studied computer science, and I brought my Linux machine there. And it was re- really kind of interesting, too, because I was in a computer science program, and I remember I went to the help desk to get help with something. I, I think I was trying to set up... Because I was used to PPP, and I had to figure out how to get it on the Ethernet, because I had never had access to that before, and I didn't know how to set it up. And there was this guy at the um, the campus help desk who, like, went out of his way to help me um, get Ethernet and, like, my network connection set up. And he said, we don't support this, by the way. We don't support Linux, so I'm just helping you. So that was funny. But, yeah, that's how I, I just got started there. I've always been interested in art and design and graphics, too. And I just... I just remember how frustrating it was getting just, like, X configurator, getting a visual desktop, like, getting that set up with, like, a multi-day process of configuration and headaches, and I just wanted it to be easier. I wanted anybody to be able to use it, so. And that makes sense. I think a lot of us, uh, especially early on, were really attracted to the visual configuration of our operating systems, because I, I remember back even in windows 3 one days like i had all these extensions on my my little computer that would let me like modify you know what i guess today we would call the window manager i think they called it the program manager and uh when i got uh, my first my first linux box it was uh, red hat 4.1 and it used fvwm and i think there were, i think it actually by default was like fvwm 95 and then like just uh, like a year or two later was uh, maybe two years later was like the first enlightenment came out <laughs> and uh, and like that thing was crazy you know like it wasn't necessarily the most practical <laughs> of you know interface but in terms of like let's show off how cool we can make things you know for a teenage boy <laughs> you know that was super uh, enticing. Uh, and and definitely you know made me want to go deeper. So I, I really get that that like desire to configure and make it look cool and make it work a certain way. 
Exactly. I remember when that came out. And I was always, like, jumping. Like, whatever was the new thing, I'd just jump ship. I had no loyalty until much further on. So, like, Enlightenment would come out, like, a new version, so I'd jump to that. And then, you know, this gnome thing came about, and I jumped to that. And then there was some KDE that you could have a transparent um, uh, program menu. You know, and I was like, oh, my God, I need that. So then I would just jump ship to KDE, so. So, so yeah, that... I. I also really got into the configuration of things and uh, my, my free software. I remember getting really excited by configuring X screensaver and that felt like I had a lot of power over my computer being able to mess with things. But you're right, it, it wasn't easy to get a lot of things going. In some ways, the fact that X screensaver and some of those things were kind of superficially really configurable kind of gave me a taste for power with like, even though like it, a lot of it felt really, you know, I guess in retrospect was surface level, but I guess that can be really important, but you're right. It, it, I also, I think like many people, um, you know, I, I also struggled to really for a long time to figure out how to be able to make my desktop usable. So, so I totally get that. So, so what do you think the kind of path is today towards, um, towards making things usable? Uh, like, are, are we doing much better than we were when you started? And, and what do you think has affected that? Well, it's funny because I think when I started, and, and this will maybe tie things closer to what I actually do today, um, there was no sort of, even I think generally in software, like if you worked for a big software company like Microsoft or something, user experience design wasn't, didn't really exist yet. You had, like, human factors engineers, I think. And, you know, they come from, like, designing dashboards for cars and designing medical equipment and stuff like that. And I think that that discipline kind of leaked into software a little bit, especially, you know, from, like, the Xerox Park days. I, I think that was sort of where it came from. But you didn't have a, a UX designer the way you do today. So for me to even get involved in a free software project to help their UX, like, People didn't even have the concept, what is UX? What is user experience, right? Like, it, it wasn't really a thing. Um, and, it, and it, you know, in some fields it was, like, in some practices it was. Like, I remember Sun Microsystems, Jakob Nielsen used to work for them, and he would do usability studies and things like that. Um, well, wait, wait, but can, it, I, can, can I hold up and ask? Because sure. I think many people in our audience might not themselves know. I mean, um, almost all of us know what user interfaces are, but what do you mean by user experience and, uh, um, and, and such terminology? Sure. So <laughs> I could go into rent and I won't, but it, UX people, and it's like a broad field, you have people that study like usability and that's sort of like the QA end, like does this software actually meet the user's needs? Are users actually successfully able to complete tasks in it? And on the front end, you have more like design stuff and research and that kind of stuff. And there's different names for all of these different fields and subfields. And UX people tend to be very introspective as a field because it's a intersectional field. Like you have um, psychology, computer science, there's art and design. It, it intersects like a lot of disciplines. Um, so people are always arguing like the term like information architect. Architects don't like the fact that people use that term and then, you know, usability engineer, but it's not an actual engineering discipline. So they, they argue over terms all the time. User experience is sort of like the neutral term that people don't argue about. So you can just say UX design or UX stuff, and people generally know what you're talking about. Um, 
It's, it's just funny because I, when I was um, 12, I was really lucky. I, I grew up in New Jersey, and um, at the time it was the, the home of Bell Labs, which I think was still Bell Labs and not, quite, and not loosened, and now I don't know what it is. Uh, and I had a mentorship, and one of the people I got to meet was, I guess what you'd call a user interface person there, a user experience person, because they were, they were tell, telling me about their work, which involved studying the rings that were going to be used in telephones. And like all these studies that they had done to find the ring that was going to bring people, you know, that was going to get their attention, but, but not irritate them. So it had to be the, and they would study the <laughs> tones and the duration and the frequency of ring, like all these aspects to get like the perfect ring that's going to bother you, but not quite uh, too much. And like, every time I think about user experience, I'm like, uh, is, is, that what, is that what this is? <laughs> like just a lot of study about how to like get people the right, uh, not just annoyance, but like, you know, the pleasant, you know, ex- you know, the present, the pleasant click or the pleasant visual display, you know, is that, is that essentially what this is? Yeah. I mean, that's definitely, that's definitely a piece of it. And I would, I would assume the person you spoke to was probably their job title was human factors maybe. But I mean, yeah, that's absolutely like it's, it's the entire broad field is basically PEBCAC. (laughs) It's trying to, to minimize PEBCAC. The problem exists between the the keyboard and the the computer. Um, The, the people work one way, computers work the another way. And UX is almost like a practice of people who are ambassadors for both sides who kind of direct relations between the two sides, if that makes sense. So it, you know, it helps when you have a UX person who has some computer science background because they understand the limitations and the frameworks on the computer, but then they also have a little bit of psychology and um, experience understanding how people work. So to be able to bridge those two things. So, and but I mean, it could be from anything like there's front end people and like their main thing is, they're, they're, I would call them like visual designers and their main thing is like how the software looks, um, the color palette, the icons, stuff like that. There's even in more sophisticated, um, you know, platforms and stuff. You, you might have like an audio engineer who would do the type of stuff you're describing, who would, you know, pick out the perfect sounds that, that meet the need, but they don't irritate, but they're still noticeable. But you know, the best, the best interface design is not noticed. Because as soon as you notice it, it's calling attention to itself. And that's not what the user should be focusing on. They should be focusing on what they're trying to get done. So, you know, like, like right now, like we're, we're talking in a, like an audio conferencing tool kind of thing, right? If we start noticing the tool itself, rather than thinking about the conversation that we're having and the back and forth and, wow, this is a great conversation. If we're instead talking about, oh, you know, that I got so confused about this button or, you know something oh there was cool artwork in in the tool you're not thinking about the thing you were supposed to be doing which is having the conversation so you know the best user experience lets people focus on the thing they're trying to do not the software itself they're almost like a butler you know like you're not supposed to notice the butler if they're good so i have a i have a question um so how does this so you're you're talking about um uh, that that expression of you know user experience is done well when especially when we don't notice the software as once much and that makes a lot of sense to me um so how does that translate into bringing that to a 
free software audience? Like what kind of things are done generally to do that? Well, okay, so that's that is sort of if we wanted to continue my, my sort of background story, that the answer to that question, it, which I would call like a conundrum, is there, right? So, so I'm at university. I'm, I, I studied at RPI, and um, I'm doing a dual degree program in computer science and electronic media, thinking, you know, well, this will be a good way. I'll have sort of like the, the design coursework and foundation, and I'll have the computer science foundation. And that should be kind of the right stuff to be able to make this open source stuff easier to use. To, to you know, my my early goal was GIMP, because I really, I really wanted to make GIMP as cool as Photoshop was at the time, right? Like I'm, I can't believe I'm saying Photoshop was cool. <laughs> I, I do not believe that. But you could do a lot more things with Photoshop more easily at the time. But I wanted GIMP to be like that. Um, that was probably not the best community to start off in. Um, and again, like like I, I said earlier, you know, UX wasn't really a widely known practice in software in general, never mind in the free software community. So I kind of showed up and I kind of tried to be useful and I, I got yelled at. So I went away and it, it actually, it really, um, it set me back a while from contributing because I was afraid. I was like afraid of getting yelled at. I was afraid of like conflict. Um, I was probably more shy then than I am right now. Um, so what I ended up doing, cause I still really, like, I really wanted to, to work on free software. Like that's what I wanted to do. Um, I did a, um, it was like an independent study with one of my professors, my junior year with like a team of my classmates. Cause we, we were all, you know, we had an ACM group there that was very pro Linux, very pro free software. We talked about, you know, the GPL and we talked about the philosophy and we really believed in it. And we even did like a group, um, they, there used to be Linux World down at the, the Java Center in Manhattan. And we would like go as a group every year to Linux World and stuff like that. So um, a, a bunch of us from that group did this independent study. And I I remember the name of the project with Mimsy. I don't remember what it was, which is really bad. But I, I think it was some form of wiki or content management system type of thing. But the idea was, well... Free software projects are kind of scary. People are mean. So let's just start our own from scratch because the main thing that matters is the license, right? So that's like where we were coming from, or at least where I was coming from in my participation in it. And I mean, it was fun, right? Like we, we actually got a lot done. We were we were um, good friends and everything. So we were, you know, we would meet in person and talk it over and work on it. And then we'd hang out in IRC and work on it. And it, I think the project went really well. But, you know, after the semester was over, that was it. It kind of died because we had other stuff to do. And I still really wanted to make an impact in, like, a real project, you know, with, like, a lot of people, not just my friends at school. Um, But that was something, like, I puzzled over. Like, well, you know, I have this sort of, this UX. And at the time, like, I I would call it HCI, which is human-computer interaction, which is the academic title of the field. So, you know, I have this HCI background, and I I know open source and free software need my help, but I just don't know how to connect the dots. I don't know how to get involved. And I know that, um, I want to say it was maybe my senior year or maybe when I was starting grad school, um, the whole Zimian stuff was happening. And I I think, I, I don't know all of the specifics of the history there, but I do know that they did engage with, I believe Stanford trained D school um, folks on the interface. Um, I don't know if they were like as contractors or how that worked, 
But they came out with Nautilus and like that, I don't know if you remember, like the early days Nautilus design, and it made a big splash at um, the Linux world um, after that because it, it looked so clean and, and interesting and it wasn't just a rote copy of, of like the Windows Explorer, but it had like neat features to it and it had like clean, nice graphics. Um, and that excited people. And I, I think that's, for me at least in my experience, I felt like that was when maybe free software started looking towards the user experience and, and engaging with people with that discipline. But again, like my problem was, how do I break into that? I want to get involved. You know, I really want to get involved. Um, so I, I ended up the whole dot-com thing, the bubble burst. And so I wasn't getting a job. So I, I did, I went into grad school and I was studying human computer interaction as my, my master's. And um, I, I had this intention. I was going to stay for a PhD. I ended up dropping out. Um, and this is why I ended up dropping out. Because, again, I actually had, like, this focus through school. I wanted to make free software better. But I kind of learned being in grad school, well, okay, I'm, I'm producing this research. Now, how do I get the people coding the software to listen to what I have to say, to, to, to learn about my findings and apply it, right? Because if you have articles that are in a journal that has a paywall or at a conference that costs $3,000 to attend. I mean, free software developers are not going to do that. So um, I sort of, I had this thought, well, what if I went with a group of free software developers and learned how they work and sort of made my research more usable to them? Because if I understand how they do what they do, then maybe I can figure out a way to work with them in a way that fits into their workflow and it actually happens. So that is when I, um, I had a friend who worked at Red Hat out in Westford, Massachusetts, and I was in upstate New York. I was at RPI in Troy, New York. It's about a three-hour drive. So I just, you know, I messaged him, and I was like, hey, do you think, you think there's a way that, you know, we could do something here? And I told him I, I had a stipend for the summer, so I actually, I had money. Like, it was a research grant, so I could do research, and I wanted this to make my research. And I'm like, can I do an unpaid internship? And he didn't really know. So I just drove out there, and I showed up, and I I, um, I stayed on his couch. And then um, I had to be on campus for the terms of the research grant a certain number of days a week. So I would, like, I think I'd, like, go out on a Tuesday morning I'd sleep on his couch a few nights, and I'd head back on Friday. But I spent, you know, maybe three days a week in the Red Hat office in Westford. And I don't think it would work today, but they totally let me do it. I said, you know, hey, I'll work for free. I'm a big fan. Okay, here you go. Just grab whatever cube's empty. <laughs> so um, that's that's sort of by, by actually having that in-person introduction to people, to being physically proximal to them and they had all the connections to all the big upstreams that I wanted to have some kind of um you know ability to work with that that was what really helped me um kind of get involved from that level and the other thing that really helped um was you know having these these friends I, I considered them friends that were in the community when I was trying to do something that maybe people were less familiar with, like what is this usability testing stuff you're trying to do, or you know, who is this designer, artist, person, they don't know what they're talking about, they would actually vouch for me and back me up and defend me if people were attacking me, which really helped. And I, I, don't, I don't know how I could have done what I did when I did it without that, because it would have been terrifying. <laughs> so that's an awesome story and it, it really helps uh, 
it explains a lot about you know the well, and it shows. I'm going to redo that whole thing. That's a great story, and it, what I like about it is it not only talks about your individual experience, but you know, you you you're talking about a critical time for you know for GNU Linux and free software where you know user interfaces were totally up in the air. I remember you know when I started in '97 and like they were pretty ugly and they were also pretty hard to use and complicated. And yeah, you're right. Like in that, in that when KDE came out, like that was totally different and looked just as good as windows 95, if not, if not better. And then Gnome came out shortly after, and it was this huge revelation. And then, yeah. And then Zimian, you know, which was this effort, I guess, to kind of semi-commercialize Gnome was this huge jump in, um, in, in the way our software felt and it, it looked polished and it worked kind of, it, it, it just, it just worked like you'd expect. And I think now we're in this weird place because we have, we have a lot of software written by big companies like, you know, like Red Hat and, and others. Uh, and they have user experience people. They can afford and they understand the value because of your work and others work of why this is important. So they can hire people but then we have a whole lot of software written just by, you know, either individuals or small teams and they can't, you know, afford a, a user experience person and, and user experience people don't there aren't as many of them in the community as we need. So how do we how do we bridge those worlds, you know, if, if you're not if you're not in the position of paying someone? Is is there is there a way that, you know, are are, are there principles that we can adhere to or how do you come, you know, how do you give as a user experience person, give feedback to a project like how how can we how can we help uh, continue to improve things without big budget and funding models? Right, and that's it's a bit of a conundrum, right? Because, I mean, there's a few there's a few levels to this, and the one thing that I want to make sure that I say is, um, I've definitely had people ask me, why aren't there more UX people in the free software community? Is it because they're just interested in money? And we can't pay them, and they won't work for free. And I don't, I don't think that's actually the case. Um, I, I know a lot of UX designers who, you know, and I, I've, I've actually mentored a lot over the years too. Every summer, I try to take on a UX intern, and I've been in different programs and stuff, and interacting with with uh, designers that are sort of new to free software. And you know, when you tell them about the background, and you tell them about the philosophy, and even especially the parts. Um, you know, user freedom is important, and the users should not be the product. We shouldn't be selling users' data in order to make money. That is a terrible model. UX designers do not like being hired to design software that steals people's time and energy away from their family and away from what they should be doing just to pay some ad, right? So um, they get, they're very compelled by the idea, and the issue is not that oh, well, I'm not paid to work on it and I, I won't deign to volunteer for such a project. It's more that the very nature of design as a practice, you can't really do in a drive-by fashion. Like, you can, like, you know, if you're using a piece of software and there's some tiny bug and it just really irritates you, you can write, like, you know, a 10-line patch and fix it. And that's sort of like a small atomic contribution that you can make. And there's a whole process that's very clear and outlined for doing a pull request or however that project accepts patches. And you can follow that. Design is a little bit more murky, you know? It's like a little bit 
weird and nebulous and creative and how exactly is this going to work. So just approaching it is difficult. But design also impacts the software and the architecture of the software and the very idea and function of the software very deeply. So it's not something you can really do on a drive-by basis, especially if the software in question is for a very specific problem domain. Like I used to work on Red Hat Network for Red Hat, and that problem domain is around um, monitoring, provisioning, and configuring servers. Now, how many people off the street are going to understand how what what does provisioning a server mean? <laughs> it's not it's not common knowledge. So you actually have to learn the problem domain to be able to design functionally for that product. And even that, I mean, that takes at least weeks of work, reading up on it, interviewing people, whatever. So. I think that's the main issue that we need to address is how can we enable designers to participate in free software projects in a way that isn't like a multi-month project? Because, uh, you know, if it's volunteer time, that's a significant investment to ask any volunteer. Well, well, let me... So, so I think you're right that the process for contributing is different for UX than it is for software development, probably. Um, is there also maybe an um, a difference in empowerment aspect? Because I know, like, as you said, if I come to a free software project and as a software developer, um, it's I'm the tools have mostly been built for my kind of workflow, I feel like, right? Like, it's fairly easy for me to come to, um, you know, a project that I use regularly. And if I'm, if I'm able to identify how to get a patch in there, um, I can submit it and, you know, Git is very developer oriented and everything feels very oriented towards me. And, and similarly, uh, even starting a project, um, feels as a software project, I guess, for good reason, it, it feels easier to do, um, being kind of a standalone developer. Do you feel like there's, there's kind of a, a difference there in, in, in what's necessary to accommodate people doing design and UX or do you, or, or am I, am I missing the mark? No, no, I think you're exactly right. Cause you know, the designers, they work on the idea of the thing, how it should function, what features should it have? What features should it not have and how those things should work and appear, right? Some of the hardest code to write and maintain is user interface code. <laughs> Because it's just the way the system underneath is. Humans are weird. And it needs to be easy for humans, which a lot of times means that the code underneath is quite ugly. And I know a lot of developers don't like writing ugly code because it's hard to maintain, and I understand that. But at the end of the day, if you have a design and you don't have any code, you have nothing. I mean, you really you don't have anything anybody can use. You, you have mock-ups and things people can look at, but it doesn't do the job. So at the end of the day, it really is the people who are writing the code that have the most power in that situation because they have the commit privileges. They have the skill set to write the code. They check it in. They could decide whether or not to agree with the designer's assessment of how things can go. And so as a designer, if you don't have that, uh, also that code knowledge base, if you don't have that skill set, you're really beholden to others. So you can't really be a, a standalone type of um, software project as just a designer because you need to interact with somebody who can actually build the code who, who is bought into your vision of how it should work. Whereas, yeah, with, a, with a, somebody who is a development background, they can sit down and develop their tool and they don't need design to push that code. 
So oh, that's that, kind of like a little bit of a power difference. I think that's the the other. I think the challenge also for a lot of us in free software is that, in in many ways, our entire not not just the software aspect, but you know, if you look at free software and free culture, we we have this ethos of, you know, we don't need to be we don't we don't need gatekeepers. Uh, you know, we don't need the people at the top telling us what we can and can't do, right? So, you know, you can't make a you can't make an encyclopedia. Only experts can make an encyclopedia, right? And here we are with Wikipedia. Um, and I I feel like one of the th- that it it gets it gets difficult for user experience because, as you say, like it it touches almost every aspect of. Of, of an applic you know of especially for graphical application it touches everything that it you know every part of it is going to be influenced by its its interface to the user um, and then that makes it challenging for maybe a single person or a small team to then collaborate with uh, a person who has a, a user interface design background because they're going to be looking at this so differently and 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 there and look and I think for many of us who've worked in software for a long time and I I have uh, I've been worked at many places. Uh, you know, several of us have seen, you know, bad UX designers where it's just it just looks pretty. And I mean, I worked at a company. I'm not going to name the name, and we had some really expensive designers come in and redesign the product, um, and it looked it looked so much better. And then our users came back and said, "Yeah, this looks so much better." But we actually, but like, we're trying to get work done, and uh, <laughs> all the yeah. all the the work part is now hidden. So we just want, and so we had to we had to reintroduce our old product back as as product name classic, uh, be, be back you know, due to user demand. So so uh, coming back to how we can you know how we can get these. Uh, how we can make this easier for our, you know, for people. Maybe are, are there, you know, in the same way that, you know, I'm not, I don't, I don't have a major in computer science. I have a minor in computer science, but that actually has very little to do with me as a, as a developer. And I think a lot of people are self-taught. Are there a principles that we can use or resources that we can use and or maybe some tooling that we can either use to design or collaborate better with designers sure so and you know you're bringing up a really good point too with your story about what happened to your um at your previous job with the software you had a group of visual designers come in and put lipstick on the pig but as the users found that the pig was still there and now the, the pig was harder to, to use. I, I don't I don't want to talk about how you use pigs, but do you see what I'm saying? Like it was just like a coat of paint. And design is not just a coat of paint. If you're doing it correctly, it goes all the way deep. And I think I think part of the reason that um, any software developer just encountering a designer trying to work with them, they they try to compartmentalize design as a function that fits into their framework and their workflow. So a lot of times this is like, it's a conflict I still have to this day. And I have like over 15 years experience in the field right now. Oh, okay, you can do icons for me. Cool, this is where you can check in the icon artwork. It should be, you know, this many pixels or whatever. Thank you so much for helping. Or, you know, oh yeah, can you make a logo for my project? I need a logo. And the idea of the designer getting engaged at a technical level is is just not something that they understand and they don't they don't know how to even 
begin to do that. You know, like when I when I started my first job at Red Hat, my first full time job, they they gave me commit access to a repo of Java code, which I had a little bit of experience with Java, but it, it wasn't like I was expected to code Java. It was more like, well, this is how we bootstrap new developers, and you're like a developer, you're working on this with us, so here, here's your commit privileges. It was like, you know, because it's like, it's just trying to figure out, well, how do I work with you? How do I speak your language? So, and in some ways, I that's think, actually a very friendly thing. Like they weren't, they weren't gatekeeping you. They were like, "You're on equal footing. Here you go." <laughs> Which oh, may not have been I've what used you it too. I, I will say I abused it because I, I remember early on, and I was a, a bit of a little snot too. But there was like an argument over what color a specific button should be. And, you know, I'm coming fresh from school at this point with all of, like, the accessibility guidelines and co- color contrast and stuff like that. And, and I knew, functionally, the color was going to be a problem for accessibility. Um, so I had, like, a, this argument with one of the developers, and he didn't want to do it. So I just went ahead, because I had a computer science degree, I could do it, and I had the commit privileges. So I went ahead and I implemented it, and I checked it in, and it was they were so floored by that that... It actually stood. So it was kind of funny because at that point, again, it, to be fair to everyone involved, right? Like it was not common to have a UX designer reporting to a development team for a software product. And a lot of them had never even worked with one. So they didn't know how to engage. But I think from that point on, they figured out, oh, she actually understands a bit of the technical stuff. Okay. So she can be trusted on a little bit of a different level than just make it pretty. So I, I think, but to, to your question, I think that you need to be able to engage with designers at a level that's not just, can you do my logo? Can you do my icon art? You know what I mean? Um, you have to understand, you have to, you have to allow them access to talk about how, how, how is this software architected? How does it work? Does the model that we picked, is that going to serve us? Or are we going to have to make changes to that fundamental model to support the user experience that we want to provide our users. I mean, like, I'm not going to name names, I'm not going to name projects, but just this week, I was talking through a feature, and there's always the, you're talking about things and sort of like the long-term blue sky, this is how we want it to be, versus the, we have to get it out the door, can we make some quick and dirty little win, right? So this project, it's, it's, you're working with files, So there's three places you can get files. You can get files from sort of like a reference library. You can upload them or you can get them on sort of like a shared drive. And for the quick and dirty, it's just because of how the back end is architected. The reference plugins, like the reference um, files versus upload and grab from your shared drive are two completely separate processes. And if I'm a user, I might want to grab one reference file, I might want to upload a file, and I might want to get a file from the shared drive. Can't do that. So you have to pick up front, do you want to have a reference file in this project, or do you want to upload or grab from shared drive? And it makes no sense. Why would I have to pick between these two modes? But it's just because that's how the back end is implemented, and it's okay. Some designers don't like making those kind of... Um, what would you call it? Like a compromise on that? But but I will because I ended, like you have to get the product out the door. Like people have to be able to use it. But that is also not like the ideal way. The the user should never be exposed to the way the back end works. And that's sort of my my case for designers really do need to be able to have discussions about how the software is architected, how the back end works, what APIs are are available. Can we open up a new call to support this other thing? They need to be able to talk about that. 
So, um, I, I, I think it's, it's, it's great having this, this, uh, um, I think we've established a lot about how it's really important to set up these kind of uh, bi-directional workflows between uh, designers and developers. Um, and our audience is not entirely developers, um, though we have a more technical audience than average. Though I'm, I'm glad actually that we've, you know, our audience seems to be, you know, range from developers to, you know, community designers to, you know, um, even some artists and uh, and so on. But um, we, we probably, the free software community probably spends more time than anything giving everybody an impression of what developer lives are like. But I think many of us don't have a good idea of what it's like to be a designer. Like, what does your day look like? What happen, What needs to happen in order for you to be able to work well with a project? And I, I wonder, you know, um, if you want to give, you know... A, a, a bit of kind of like a high level overview of like what that workflow is like for you and and how developers or other any other members of a project can can expect to be able to accommodate that um so so can you tell us a bit about what your work is like and what um and how that gets pulled into a project sure and it it is messy but there's a core of a framework um that you follow and it you know to any observer, it, it, it's all over the place. It's messy. But there's like a process that you iterate. It's almost like a loop, right? You have to start with a problem. What is the problem? It's a user problem. It could be a market problem. We need to have some feature because of the market. And that's more of like the commercial like Red Hat stuff, right? But I mean, it also could be, for example, a lot of, I think, free software projects around like the medical space are trying to figure out we need to help with COVID, right? So that's the problem. Like, how, how can we help? What can we do to, to do something for COVID? Um, and, or it could just be a problem, like, we know that this is terrible, but we don't know why. Can you figure it out, right? So, so you have to start with a, a problem to solve. And it, honestly, it's like the scientific method too, right? Because they start with problems. Okay, so then you brainstorm. How could we solve the problem? Well, let's do some research, Right, and I'm outlining steps here. So, problem, um, brainstorm, research. For for UX, there's very specific, and I won't go into them. But there's very specific things you can do to gather user data. You can do them. I do them all the time in a free software context, remotely with users. Um, and so, you do a little bit of research and learn more about the problem because you know, for example, I'm doing software for sysadmins. I'm doing software for brain scientists. I'm not a brain scientist. I'm not a sysadmin. Nobody expects me to be but I need to talk to them and get their perspective and understand their workflows in brain science or their workflows in system administration to understand how to actually support that in the software. So that's part of the research. I learn from them what their workflows are, their real world, not software workflows are. Um, And then I brainstorm along with my team, what are the ways that we can solve this? And a lot of times, I mean, this sounds like a little bit high level and weird, but if I... For example, I've brought developers along with me to visits with users to show them how they use the software, and they get it right away. Like, it sort of, like, you see the light bulb light up over their head. Oh, wow, you're using it to do this. Oh, I had no idea. So just getting people talking is really a big component of my job. Um, Getting information from the users or even having the developers talk directly to the users and have them learn what are the users actually accomplishing with the software, what do they need to do. 
I think it really keeps things real for the developers and they understand what they're doing this all for and how it's being used. The other aspect to it, so I talked about the problem, figuring out the problem, research, brainstorming solutions, which ideally we do in a group. And that's where things break down sometimes in a free software context because design is visual. Anybody can look at a UI mock-up that I might make and they can see it and they can have an opinion about it. Code is less so. So code has a little bit of a filter or gate built on it, right? Like not everybody can kind of watch the commits and understand exactly what the code is doing, but everybody has an opinion on visual things. So it can lead to a bike shedding type situation? Exactly. So that's where, and that's the tricky thing as a community we really need to work on. And this isn't really the case for proprietary software because they have a whole corporate organization structure and professional guidelines and stuff that keeps some of this in check. But we let it all out in in the open community and uh, we need to maybe support the designers just a little bit, you know, like, like I've, my teams have always had my back, so I'm not worried about that personally for me, but I think that if we want to increase the number of designers in the community, we have to have their back. Like we have to have a way, and I don't even know like what that would be, you know, like you can't point to a commit log and like, look, this person's GitHub profile, they're a great designer, look how many commits they've made. It, It doesn't translate. So we need some way of like asserting authority for designers in the community so people don't actually just troll them all the time. Mm-hmm. But that's that's one aspect of it is the brainstorm. The part I haven't talked about yet that I'm sure you're eager to hear about is the actual design artifact process. So from pencil sketches, post-it notes, uh, mock-ups. I like to use Inkscape to create mock-ups. It's a great free software project. Um, once you start laying out how the screen looks, then you have something to kind of, um, I guess, bike shed over, but in a productive way. So, like, if I, we, we go through the brainstorm, we decide how we want to solve that user problem. I mock up some screens to see how it could look. From the developers, I get feedback about, can we actually do that the way our software is tooled? Or is this going to be something we're going to have to work in some kind of quick and dirty fix? Or is it something that we're going to have to add some back-end calls to make it possible? Let's talk about this. And we sort of negotiate back and forth to get it to be something they're confident that they can implement in the time. But then I can also show those mock-ups to the end users, and they'll give me feedback about whether or not it'll actually solve their problem, which is very good because you have, it's, it's a mock-up. It takes, you know, maybe an hour, maybe two hours to create. A lot less time than it takes to implement in code So when you get the feedback from the users that it won't actually solve the problem, it's amazing because instead of spending weeks implementing a feature that won't solve the problem, I spent a couple hours doing something up in Inkscape. Oh, okay, it won't solve your problem. Let's try a different approach. So that's sort of like the full process. And you can iterate all the way through it. Like if they say it doesn't solve my problem, you can go back to the research side, do a little bit more user research, talking to people, um, figuring out why, is there something about your workflow I didn't learn that I don't know? Um, or you could go back to the brainstorming thing and have a session with the whole project team and be like, okay, is there another way we can solve this problem? So that's really the whole process in a nutshell. So I'm spending like half my day in Inkscape, half my day yakking to people. <laughs> so so I just, I, I have to ask a slightly trollish question because I feel like... Um, it comes up a lot, you know. One of the biggest criticisms of uh, free software is basically it sucks for users. The UIs are terrible. Like we still like blah blah blah. Like how do you how do you feel we're doing? Do you do you uh, um 
do you think that um, we're, we we deserve kind of, I think, the general reputation we have of still being so far behind? Do you think there's more we can do? Are there ways that we're even doing things better at all? Or where do you think really things are at? I think we're doing okay. I think we're doing a lot better than we had. I, I absolutely see changes in the community um, I see more design thinking, even if it's not by designers with a capital D, you know, developers are thinking design-minded. Um, the Gnome Project's a really good example of that. They have designers with a D that are actual designers, but their developers also have that skill set as well, and they're writing code. So I, I think they're kind of a good project to look to in the community. But I think, I mean, it, it used to be, I used to have to justify my existence, you know, like 10, 15 years ago. Now it's more... There are so many people who want our help that we can't help them all. So I think that's, a, you know, it's, I think the value of UX design, I think, is something people finally realize. And it's just the shortage of people to do it. That's the issue now. Um, I think anybody who has used enterprise-grade software, excluding my, my companies, because I actually think it's quite good, but, you know, general, like, I guess I shouldn't name names, but general enterprise business class software it's terrible. It's so bad. It's it's just, it's awful. It's like 1990s awful. Um, so you think we're at least better than that? We are definitely better than that. And I think that that's, I mean, that's where Red Hat's business started. Because, I mean, the bar was so low, right? And you come in with, with um, free software, and maybe the free software is not much better from the user interface perspective. But you can modify it. You have the code. You're not beholden to some, you know huge billionaire company having them actually pay attention to your bug and do something on it, right? So, I mean, you at least had the freedom if it wasn't working for you to modify it so that it did. Or having Red Hat or whatever company you were engaging with go in and fix it for you. It was possible. So that was like an improvement on that. But I think, you know, we've come a much longer way since then. Um, The only other thing is consumer-grade software, and especially how things are going mobile, um, that's kind of a thing where maybe they're beating us a little bit. So I, I think that's sort of, and I think the way that, that we compete there is not emulating what they're doing, rather solving the problem better than they are, following a design process and innovating and solving it in a way that they haven't even thought of yet. So um, I guess I just have one more question, which is... Um, well, you know I've been a fan of your work for a long time, and, and we've been friends for a while, chatting on on the internets and et cetera. Um, and uh, maybe some people listening to this episode will feel really excited and inspired and say, "Wow, I really want to make, I want to, I want to follow in that same path and get into user interface and user experience stuff." But I really don't feel like I know where to even get started. What would you recommend for somebody who who might be thinking that right now on listening to this episode? Sure. So let's see. And I'll I'll take it from like a free software, you know, slant. Um, Honestly, like the, the thing about UX is there's a lot of like, they come up with complicated terms for things that are ridiculous, that they're so simple, like affinity diagramming. Affinity diagramming is writing a bunch of post-it notes and putting them on the wall and categorizing them. It's not as fancy as the word affinity diagramming sounds like. Anybody can grab a bunch of post-it notes and take notes and arrange them and learn from them. So, I mean, honestly, I would get started by finding a project you're passionate about, 
making sure they value design, making sure they're a friendly environment, right? And then trying to figure out, well, what is a problem that you would like to solve for your users? Go out and do some like remote screen sharing interviews. Just, you know, find two or three users. You'll find them in forums or mailing lists or IRC and say, hey, could I just sit with you for like an hour? We want to fix, let's say it's Inkscape. We want to, we want to, um, you know, update the gradient tool. Can you show me for an hour how you use gradients in Inkscape? Watch them, observe, take notes, and then, um, you know, thank them for their time. Take about an hour. Go through your notes and you're going to see patterns. Talk to two, three, four other people. Do the same thing. Across the four people, you'll see patterns. Take, take your little notes. Categorize what kinds of problems you saw. You know, like maybe some people had problems clicking things. Maybe some people had problems because, um, you know, they had a hard time selecting the right color. You know, stuff like that. And then figure out how many people, did everyone have the problem? Did a few have the problem? Did they have that problem all the time or some of the time? prioritize the issues that hit all of the users you talk to all of the time, and you're going to make the biggest bang for the buck. So you come back to the development team, um, say the Inkscape team, and tell them, hey, all the people I talked to had this issue all the time with this bit. What could we do to fix that? Do just an informal brainstorm. You could do an IRC on the mailing list, whatever. IRC might be better because the mailing list is more likely that trolls could kind of jump in, whereas if you weren't there at the time in IRC, then you know, whatever. It's maybe safer to do it that way. And then you can kind of start opening up Inkscape itself and just drawing out how you think it should work versus how it does today. Show your drawings to the Inkscape developers and ask them, could you implement it like this? Is there a way to do this? Um, You know, and following whatever the upstream project's process is. So, you know, I know GitLab is what the Inkscape team uses and they have GitLab issues and stuff. So you might be doing this work in a GitLab issue for that team. But it's, it's really, you don't need special training to talk to people. We all talk to people. So that's all it is, is ask people, show me how you do it. I want to learn from you. Take that information, sort of analyze it, look for the patterns, and then present it to the developers and, you know, see what you can work with them to, to fix it. That's really all it is. Just you, you learn it by doing it. Awesome. Well, Maureen, it's been a real treat having you on our show. Thank you for coming by. Sure. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Um, And uh, I think we're going to wrap up here since we're hitting close to the hour mark. And so if you would like to join in our conversation and talk about um, design and user freedom oriented software and talk about or even in free culture projects, if you want to talk about, um, well, really anything that we talk about on this show, we have several avenues that you can join us on. You can speak to us on the Fediverse at uh, Libre Lounge on floss.social. Um, we're on Twitter at, at Libre Lounge. We've got um, the email is uh, podcast at Libre Lounge.org. And we have, um, and you can also uh, chat with us. We have a wonderful IRC chat room with uh, plenty of people uh, talking all the time. Um, well, not all the time, but but quite often. And um, which is pound Libre Lounge on irc.freenode.net. And uh, thank you, everyone, uh, and thank you, Maureen, for joining us. And uh, see you next time. Bye. You've been listening to Libre Lounge. You can find and subscribe to us at librelounge.org. This podcast is released under the Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 International License. 
Our theme music is Bossa Nova by Joth, which is waved into the public domain under CC0 and which you can find on opengameart.org. If you'd like to support Chris Weber's work on this and other user freedom projects, you can donate at patreon.com forward slash C-W-E-B-B-E-R. Thanks for listening. See you next time.